Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I just to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. Family violence is, is that a crisis? Are women are uh, 32 times more likely to be hospitalised because of violence than non-Indigenous women. We know that there's the ongoing legacy of racism, of sexism and violence, the cycles of poverty and trauma that makes women and girls vulnerable are still in place and it's growing. A national plan to end violence against women and children and a renewed push to raise the age of criminal responsibility in the Northern Territory. It's looking at restorative justice. It's looking absolutely at those mechanisms in which we look at justice reinvestment and, and what that means. It's really about uh, looking at this as a, uh, as a wholesome approach rather than that punitive response that has been uh, in place for a number of years, which you only have to look at the data to know that this kind of response isn't working and we need to uh, have a smarter justice system for safer communities. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Earlier this week, an ABC Four Corners special provided a detailed investigation into the alarming rates of First Nations women missing and murdered in Australia. It coincides with the release of a national plan to end violence against women and children. It was welcomed by the Australian Human Rights Commission, who also called for all Australian governments to commit resources to ensuring the plan succeeds. But it also welcomed the plan's proposal for First Nations women to lead the development of a standalone plan to address violence against Indigenous women and children. June Oscar A.O. is a Bunaba woman from the remote town of Fitzroy Crossing in Western Australia's Kimberley region. She is a strong advocate for Indigenous Australian languages, social justice, women's issues and has worked tirelessly to reduce fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or FASD. She was appointed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Justice Commissioner in 2017. So she's brought her lifelong commitment to protecting the health and rights of First Nations people, particularly women and children, to her role. June Oscar, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you, Larissa. Now, you've been Social Justice Commissioner now for five years. When you look back on that time, what have been some of your greatest achievements or the things that you're most proud of? Well, I think, firstly, that um, it's been a huge historic um, event for us as First Nations women to have the first Aboriginal woman in the role in 25 years. And for me, I felt it was important to elevate the, the issues of priority for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls through the landmark We Yani Udangani report, Women's Voices report, first ever uh, national consultation of its kind since 1986 on the issues that matter for our women. And from that very significant report, which, as you say, was a real hallmark of your commitment to this space and the amount of work you did before you even became became the Social Justice Commissioner. What were some of the key things that came out of that report and that you're hoping it will achieve? Well, I think the key um, message that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women across the country um, shared uh, was their right to self-determination, their right to agency on the issues that matter for them. And so the report provides a much-needed uh, First Nations gender lens across all areas of life for women, from rural city communities to regional towns to remote communities and very remote communities. And so women collectively brought their voices to the fore around how they want to be involved in these issues that can bring about positive change that they are co-designing around policy, programs, government investments and the participation of other supporters in these areas of needs. But clearly, women have said, we hold the solutions. We want to drive the change that we so desperately need to see 
And the report clearly highlights uh, the need for large-scale structural change. And so it was really exciting to hear that women had all of these wonderful achievements that they've experienced over the years, but they also are committed absolutely to the reforms that, that's needed in their communities. And they know best what these solutions are. I thought actually that was one of the very powerful things about the report is I think when you're like me and you've grown up in the community, you have seen through your whole life the role that women have played in our community organisations in doing all that unpaid behind the scenes work of getting kids to school or coming up with the breakfast programs. And I thought it was a very important thing to actually, as you say, acknowledge the success that Aboriginal women have already had and Torres Strait Islander women have already had in the work that's being done to keep communities together. And I I couldn't remember seeing a report that had done such a good job of acknowledging that legacy. Yes, um, you know, we when we approach the engagements with women and girls across the country, we came without a set agenda on only interested in certain topics. It was up to women and girls to share what it was that they felt we needed to hear. So that was all what we discussed with them and included in in stage one of the engagements and um, the drafting of the report. It's absolutely in their voice. It's around the issues that matter for them. And we're very proud of that work. And sadly, some of the issues... Uh, issues that women raised way back in 1986. But there's been a lot of achievements, as we both know, that Indigenous women have made across this country in so many sectors. And again, um, with this report, we highlight those achievements, but we also highlight the ongoing challenges that women have, but more importantly, the solutions that um, Indigenous women have around these issues. So once the report engagements were finalised and the um, report was um, presented to Federal Parliament in uh, December 2020, uh, I had spent the second stage of the project socialising the report with communities, with organisations, with governments throughout the country and translating its aspirations into um, actions and initiatives to create meaningful change. So we created a national network for action and the development of a supporter toolkit for community, for private and public sector stakeholders, uh, looking to embed the report into their work. Uh, we've been working with governments and communities and organisations on local implementation of the report and we've held so um, many roundtables with community leaders and experts to inform the development of the Women's Voices um, We Yani Udangani implementation framework, which draws on the substantial evidence base and actions put forward in the report and provides the conceptual underpinning for the systems change work that's ahead. So um, we're now in stage three of the project um, where we're working on um, an online First Nations Women's Policy Forum, which we held early this month, um, or last month actually, 12th of September, to inform the national plan to end violence against women and children and the development of a standalone First Nations plan. We're planning now for Australia's first ever First Nations Women and Girls National Summit in May next year, from the 9th to the 11th, um, which is a, a hybrid event in which First Nations women and girls uh, participants, in, you know, including around 200 in-person um, delegates from remote, rural and urban communities from across the country, and their participation into the whole conversations around decision-making in determining the strategic direction of work ahead and how it is uh, structured, how it is supported and um, how it's governed into the future. 
um, you know, there's some exciting work ahead. We've developed a framework for action on First Nations gender justice and equality, which presents a powerful shared agenda for women and girls to use both when working with stakeholders and governments to progress the change and in order to bring attention to these critical areas and to encourage investment in community-led gender responses. So stage three will culminate in the development of a First Nations Gender Justice Institute as well. And we have been having conversations with the Australian National University, the ANU, which will carry the legacy of women's voices into the future. So, you know, it's exciting times ahead and we're absolutely committed to keeping First Nations women and girls issues and presence on the political horizon for uh, input into all uh, issues around policy, legislation and decision-making on the issues that impact their lives. I was going to ask you about the National Plan to End Violence Against Women and Children and which you and other commissioners have supported. And it's very clear listening to you talk that the work that you've been doing in this space um, has been incredibly important in terms of articulating what the issues are for First Nations women and, as you've said, what the solutions are and then in putting a pathway forward. So I assume that the national plan, as it's been announced, and it did say that it would have, um, it would ensure inclusivity of First Nations women's voices. I assume that national plan will incorporate and honour the work that you've been doing in this space. Uh, Well, look, I uh, hope so. And uh, from all of my involvement to date, I've been able to have the opportunity to stress and, you know, reaffirm the uh, report and the voices of over 2,000 plus women and girls across our country on this issue of, or this crisis of family violence and ending violence in our communities. And so there's also been a clear call from Indigenous women and girls around the need for a standalone plan to reflect on the issues and the solutions of violence and the need for protection in our communities for our women and girls, our families and our elders. So I really believe that it is time that Indigenous women are included in our autonomous and independent way with a commitment to a dedicated plan that speaks to the uniqueness of our experiences of um, the need for safety and protection. And so we don't want to be an add-on to a mainstream process. And I think that message had been heard loud and clear. And we will continue to um, uh, assert that, that we require a dedicated, standalone national plan to commit to um, the issues as we experience them around the need for safety and protection and the solutions that we believe that needs to be responded to with the full commitment of resourcing and investment, and it could be financial investment, it could be the investment of people with the appropriate expertise to be responding and supporting women and and children who are needing to be safe and, and to be protected. And Larissa, we know that family violence is is that a crisis. Our, our women are 32 times more likely to be hospitalised because of violence than non-Indigenous women. We know that there's the ongoing legacy of racism, of sexism and violence, the cycles of poverty and trauma that makes women and girls vulnerable are still in place and it's growing and we need multi-pronged 
strategies that are informed by expertise of the women in the community, including their lived experiences as survivors to turn this situation around. Um, you know, this is a crisis, but we need to move on from crisis responses and women need to have responses that are available to them. They need the reforms that responds to women's needs and allow them to have different outcomes that don't continue to place them in situations of such extreme vulnerability, which is what we're seeing now. One of the things that's always struck me about one of the strengths you've brought to the position as of um, Social Justice Commissioner is all of the work that you've done on the ground at the community level has, I think, visibly been clear in the way that you have approached policy at the national level. It's very clear how you're seeing what you're advocating for at the national level will impact on the ground. But as you just mentioned, you you are really dealing with a space that has been a, a place of crisis and you're trying to move beyond that. I was, was wondering when you look at how long you've been working in this area, do you see positive change? Do you, are you optimistic about what we can achieve in the future, considering this continues to be an intractable, difficult problem? Look, it's unfortunate, very unfortunate, that we continue to experience uh, obstacles and barriers along the way, but that doesn't stop us all from uh, demanding the, the change and the reforms that we so desperately need to see. And we continue to call this out. We continue to expose the truth of what um, exists in the community, in the lives of so many. And I think, uh, you know, in, in these times when we're talking about uh, truth-telling, and um, articulating in detail the issues as we're experiencing them on the ground, um, that's the only way we're, we're going to um, see change and see the response that we, we need. So my message to everyone is, is keep speaking your truth, keep putting it out there because um, we, we can't afford to not um, be speaking our truth. And we, we will see the response. Um, and we must have hope. We must be optimistic um, and believe that we can bring um, the change um, to take place in the lives of so many of our people. Commissioner, thank you so much for that. There was a lot of inspiration in there about how an individual person can feel more empowered by being a part of this process too. And we'll be watching uh, your work into next year and the, the big events that you've outlined for us. So I hope you might come back and talk a little bit about that as you continue to pave the way in this area. Thank you, Larissa. June Oscar is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The Northern Territory could become the first jurisdiction in Australia to raise the age of criminal responsibility after legislation was put before Parliament earlier this month. Attorney-General Chancy Pache is advocating for the change and he will join me shortly. First, though, some music from the Saltwater Band.
Speaking out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Earlier this month, Northern Territory Attorney-General Chancey Pache introduced legislation in Parliament to raise the age of criminal responsibility. It comes after a long-running national push to reduce the number of young people coming into contact with the criminal justice system. Attorney-General Chancey Pache joins me now. Attorney, welcome back to Speaking Out. Ah, it's great to be with you. It's been a while since we've had you on the show and you were appointed Attorney General in May. How have you found the role? Well, look, it has been a little while. It's been a whirlwind, lots of work, but really happy to say that um, I've managed to get some really progressive uh, reform through um, and is currently before the Northern Territory Parliament. Well, we mentioned earlier the legislation to raise the age of criminal responsibility in the Northern Territory uh, put to Parliament earlier this month. From your perspective, why are these reforms necessary? Yeah, look, I'm really so excited about these reforms, um, particularly because it's the first of its kind in the country. Um, And, you know, look, for me, the sooner a child becomes involved in the justice system, the more prolonged their involvement is. And, you know, punitive measures to address children's behaviour is, in my position, it's it's not the answer. Um, So these are about being smarter in the ways in which we work with young children to get them back on track um, and to really stop that prolonged relationship with the justice system. So it's just simply put, making sure that we have uh, a more new age justice system that responds uh, more appropriately um, to victim survivors, but also uh, to children um, and looks at those therapeutic responses. I was going to ask you that from your perspective, what are the alternative pathways to reduce rates of reoffending, given that we are seeing statistically that juvenile crime is on the rise? Yeah, I think when we talk about, um, you know, youth or antisocial behaviour, um, I think what we really need to really understand is there are a number of factors which contribute to those um, increasing numbers. And one of those uh, is, you know, many people across the country are living uh, below the poverty line, um, which, you know, means that in most instances, it's really hard for them in the home environment. They're often out on the streets, but we know that simply locking up a kid isn't the answer because sometimes the children come out needing more help than when they went in. So this is looking at those responses that help us to deal with those situations. So it's looking at intensive family support services. It's looking at restorative justice. It's looking absolutely at those mechanisms in which we look at justice reinvestment and and what that means. It's really about uh, looking at this as uh, as a wholesome approach rather than that punitive response that has been uh, in place for a number of years. You only have to look at the data to know that this kind of response isn't working and we need to uh, have a smarter justice system for safer communities. It's interesting hearing you talk because when I hear you talk or I listen to Attorney General in South Australia, Kaya Ma, talk, there's a different language and a different set of ideas. What difference do you think it makes to have a First Nations person in the Attorney General's role? Oh, I think it's incredibly um, important and it does enable a different lens to be to be put on things. You know, Larissa, when I became the Attorney General and I was walking through the correctional facilities and the courts, I had, you know, family members yelling out, waving and welcoming me, which was kind of awkward. But I understand the challenges in which people uh, are brought to the justice system. And I understand that there are much, much easier, efficient ways and more humane ways to respond to the behaviours and address them. And also, you know, jailing is failing, locking people up and not giving them the opportunity to participate in meaningful programs to address those behaviours is not good enough. We do need to pivot and making sure that we try everything we can 
to divert First Nations people away from the justice system, engaged in more meaningful programs that absolutely deliver, is crucial. There have been funding cuts for circuit courts. What is this thinking around that in terms of its impact on justice? And are you confident a resolution can be found? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, particularly when we talk about the the bush courts or the circuit courts, um, delivering you know justice is and will always be an ongoing challenge. Um, I certainly have been working with the Northern Territory Legal Aid Commission and other stakeholders such as NAJA to address the matters, and we've got them now uh, where they've resumed circuit courts again and. Continuing to work, Larissa, with my federal government colleagues on this matter towards a more sustainable funding agreement because the previous Liberal coalition, when they negotiated um, those national partnership agreements, really shortchanged those jurisdictions such as the Territory because it's a real East Coast-centric model. So when you look at parts of NTSAWA and, and parts of Queensland, uh, what it does, it doesn't really account for those remote, you know, I, I've done bush courts uh, as the Attorney General and, you know, getting out in a car or a plane and getting out 700 k's from the nearest city, um, these are distances that people have to travel to to deliver those court services. So it's a larger financial cost. So rest assured, um, I continue to make sure that everyone hears me in those roundtable meetings with the attorneys and will continue to advocate for that funding so that we can continue to see these bush courts continue because they are really important. Um, Going to be introducing legislation next year um, around uh, bush courts and having part of that is uh, Aboriginal uh, leadership uh, in law and justice groups who will be providing advice and um, talking to the judges around sentencing options as well. So really good reform there, but again, is absolutely dependent and crucial that the bush court circuit continue. So I've got a bit more work there, which I suspect will uh, give me a few more grey hairs, but it's well worth it. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you a little bit about um, something else that must be giving you grey hairs because I have such admiration for people like yourself who get in to really try and change the system from within, which is so hard and intractable for blackfellas to manage and change. It's very admirable work, but it's very hard work and you are really up against an entrenched system. So I was wondering how just for you personally, you navigate something like the community requests or demands or protests to close, say, Dondale, where, you know, you would have so much passion and empathy for the issue, but there are such constraints around what you can do. On that issue in particular, how are you navigating that? Look, it's a really, um, it's a difficult issue. No denying, um, no denying that. I think people really underestimate um, the enormous pressures that are put on First Nations people. So, you know, us as as Aboriginal people, as as um, countrymen, um, inside the party structures is always a challenge because we have fundamental beliefs and values that are at our core. They are who we are. And navigating that in a system that is designed uh, to not take those into consideration is, is something you have to constantly navigate. But, you know, I think one thing that makes me kind of really empowered or keeps me strong is getting out and actually continuing to talk and listen and really understand people. And often you both want the same outcome at the end. It's the road in which you choose to take the journey to get there. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, I absolutely do not want uh, any young person or child in a youth detention facility. And that's the work that I've got to embark on with my team around making sure that we, we set that goal and we drive towards it. But, you know, I absolutely... It's hard um, and it's also hard for our mob who are constantly pushing for change and sometimes it feels like it's such a long way. And I think recently one thing that's been really refreshing for me and for I guess the community is um, taking this step to raise the age of criminal responsibility um, is something that the community have championed for a long time. It's something that the evidence is clear in saying that this is the right thing to do. And that's, I guess, Larissa, for me, I remember one of my aunties, Annie Pat Turner, told me when I was entering Parliament, 
you've got to write all your values down. So on these hard days when you're feeling, you know, you're struggling, you can look back at those values and they'll help you and guide you make the decision and then you know you've made the right one. I think that's really important. It's wonderful advice. We're big fans of Arnie Pat on this show and uh, that sort of wisdom is exactly why she's one of our favourites. Another issue that's gained a lot of attention recently has been the end of the alcohol bans in remote communities. You're there on the ground, you're talking to people. This is a really complex issue. From your perspective, what are your reflections on the impact of these laws? Yeah, I think it's certainly very interesting out on the ground talking to people. And, you know, I think we've got to constantly remind people around the rest of the country, you know, um, us as blackballers, we're not a homogenous group. So there's always going to be competing ideas and priorities on a number of things. But I think I never supported the racist legislation um, and the Stronger Futures legislation that basically took away the same rights and controls that First Nations people should have had over their lives in this matter. I think when it came in, it was designed that over the period they were supposed to have alcohol management plans enforced. We know that they sat on the desk of the Commonwealth ministers for a number of years. But I think we have to also look at these situations. Um, We've got a number of community members, uh, remote communities, town camps, um, urban living areas and homelands, People saying we absolutely um, know that alcohol has been coming in for a while now, um, but we need to make sure that we better have provisions in place to manage and live with alcohol. But also, I guess, you know, many communities in the NT were already general restricted areas and that reverted back when the um, Stronger Futures legislation sunsetted. But there's ongoing work and there's always going to need to be work. I working with, you know, Annie Linda Burney and, and Annie Marion Scrimminger around working in this space to look at the impacts um, and if there are additional measures or options that we can bring in. But, you know, the most important thing for me in this space is it's got to be driven by the local community, not outside people or organisations determining the rights for remote Aboriginal people. It's got to be driven by that leadership on the ground in those communities because we need to understand their challenges and their issues, but also what they want. I would like to acknowledge your very strong advocacy against the Stronger Futures legislation and a lot of what you predicted would be its negative impact sadly came to pass. So it's great to have you there now um, understanding what needs to be uh, changed after the impact of those laws. Um, Family and domestic violence is obviously a very big concern What sort of government support do you think is needed and how important is the community-controlled sector in any response to this issue? Oh, look, what I mean, this is such a huge issue, I guess, nationally, but I think it's such a huge issue here in the Territory given the high rates of domestic and family violence that we, we do see. I mean, we've made provisions. We've got a Minister for the Prevention of Domestic and Family Violence and, and Sexual Violence. You know, I think... Here in the Territory, we will not stay silent on continuing to advocate and call on the Commonwealth for needs-based funding that recognises those complexities we face here in the NT, Larissa. I think we've done a huge volume of work. We're currently doing uh, domestic and family violence legislative reforms um, and systems reviews, but the community sector in this space is absolutely crucial. You know, I mean, I was absolutely brought to tears on um, Monday night out, you know, I was out bush and we watched the Four Corners series on domestic and family violence and Aboriginal women. And I think it was just so devastating and heartbreaking to see that trauma continue. And we really need to stand up and really call on this approach for needs-based funding to help address that. Community-controlled sector are crucial. They're on the ground. They're the experts. We need to work with them. Here in the Territory, we are working with the DV sector on co-design of programs around men's behavioural programs, programs that tackle violence, um, you know, programs that look at strengthening the family unit and some recent changes um, that are before NT Parliament at the moment are about mandating judges 
to consider mitigating risks for DV victim survivors and their families. So we're saying as a judge, when you are sentencing, you need to consider the impacts and what can be done to mitigate the risk of the victim survivor and their family. So it's really important. The Northern Territory has gone down the path of a treaty process. Can you tell us where that's at at the moment? Yeah, so we absolutely know that treaty um, is such an important issue, self-determination for um, brothers and sisters out bush and in the urban centres is really important. The treaty report was completed. It's been handed over to the Northern Territory Government. Um, Minister Selina Yubo is uh, working on the responses to the recommendations in the report, um, and that'll be um, released at the end of the year um, around how we will work uh, with the community to deliver a, a number of those key reforms in that. So I think that's really important. Also, I think what is important is how these work together, particularly with the constitutional recognition, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, and how we make sure that uh, these processes complement one another. Yes, that is very important. It'll be interesting to see how that happens. And it's a wonderful example of where states and territories can lead the way uh, before the federal government goes down the path. Um, Other times we've spoken, um, you've been such a strong advocate for greater economic development and employment opportunities in the Northern Territory. And I'm sure just because you've got this portfolio now, that's no uh, less an issue that's a priority for you. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the um, outcomes you're hoping might be achieved in those areas. Yeah, a great question. I'm so glad that you asked. I'm really passionate about this area. I think, you know, we've got a number of programs in the Territory, remote housing program, and it's great when you're out bushing, you're seeing, you know, fellow countrymen out there, you know, working and building on those sites. I think for me, one of the exciting things is, and I'm I am. Um, I feel like I'm out there cracking the whip with my federal colleagues. But with the change of government, uh, is the change of, of, for an opportunity here, and that is the CDP Community Development Program. It doesn't work. Doesn't deliver in the bush. Everyone out bush is not happy with it. This is an opportunity now for the new federal government to scrap it and bring in uh, real wages, real jobs real opportunities for people out bush. And, you know, when we talk about the bush, we've got to stop talking about our regional economic development opportunities. You need to create sometimes economies in those communities. And that's what we need to be doing is looking at this. Where are the opportunities? Um, People absolutely need, as I said, real jobs, real wages, real entitlements, to make that real difference. So obviously working across that with uh, Minister Linda Burney um, because there are so many people out bush who are hungry for a real job and to participate in the economic opportunities because the bush is absolutely full of opportunities and is a, you know, is a real uh, key to um, our future, whether that's in renewable energy, uh, whether that is in um, infrastructure, um, or you look at the amazing contributions that our mob make in the um, creative industries, the opportunities are endless, but there are a few federal government settings that need to be changed. You know, I mean, Larissa, I am all up for banning fake Indigenous art that comes into the country um, because we need to value the contributions that our First Nations artists make. Many of the things we've discussed in our chat have been very difficult, intractable problems, but I was wondering if you could reflect on what have been some of the most positive changes within Indigenous affairs and what is it that gives you hope for the future? Oh, you know, for me, I think when we look at Indigenous affairs and over the years, I think there's been a real, we've got to celebrate how far we have come. And I think a few years ago, we didn't see the number of First Nations people participating on that national stage, whether that's people um, in our justice system. You know, we've got a number of um, Aboriginal judges now. We've got uh, Aboriginal people elected to parliament, Aboriginal people becoming CEOs. Um, You know, really, for me, Larissa, uh, it's important for our mob. You can't be what you can't see. So you've really got to make sure that we celebrate right across um, 
the spectrum and the sectors where First Nations people are making a difference. Um, and that's even on a grassroots level. I think that the local community um, have absolutely come together over recent years and reinvigorated that level of activism and passion that we had, you know, in the early uh, 70s and 80s when we were advocating and marching for, you know, our own legal services, medical services. I think we've reignited that energy and uh, we've really put the focus on the absolute need to reform the justice system to tackle structural racism, really important conversations. And I think that we're starting to really see that big reform taking place, which is really heartening to see. I think it's important to celebrate those, but also to continue to work together to say we absolutely need more and we need more of the community um, embarking on that journey with us um, to really celebrate that. I think First Nations people have done an amazing job in educating non-Indigenous people around the absolute need to protect um, places of spiritual and cultural significance. And I think as we transition um, to, you know, a greener economy, First Nations people absolutely front and centre around looking at those options and looking at um, how they can work with businesses to have economic development opportunities out bush. Well, you're a bit of an inspiration and trailblazer. So it's wonderful to have you on the show. It's always such a privilege to speak with you. And I also want to thank you for the strength and bravery to take a seat at a very difficult table. It's great to have you there. Attorney, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Larissa, thank you. Always happy to, to chat, but I think just important, I wouldn't be where I am now if it weren't for um, the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations and community groups. And more importantly, if it weren't for the strength and resilience of all our brothers and sisters right across the country, uh, whether it's in the cities, the suburbs, uh, or the remote communities, town camps. I mean, we all, as Aboriginal people working in these roles, we get out of bed every day because it's our mission to try and make life better for our mob. And we can't do that if we're not supported and encouraged to, to take those steps and, and have, those, um, have those hairy fights if we're not supported. So, you know, just a big shout out to, um, to all our mob uh, far and wide. Thanks so much. Thank you. That's Northern Territory Attorney General and Minister for Justice, Chancy Pache. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you highlights from this year's Charles Perkins Memorial Oration. Over the last decade, I've worked with communities across the NT from areas over 10 hours drive from each other, all connected in a united fight to protect their land and water against fracking gas fields that would cover 70% of the Northern Territory's land mass in fracking gas field. We're seeing this connection of communities happening all across this country where there is this reckoning happening with the relationship and the power imbalance that exists between communities and mining corporations. That's when the traditional owners whose significant global site, Jukun Gorge, uh, was blown up. They started to rally again uh, and tell the country, hang on a minute, what happened here was also racism. That's what blew the campaign for cultural, cultural heritage protection right open. And people were outraged that this was completely legal, that the legislation at a federal level still hadn't been implemented. This is exactly what Charlie did. There was a global movement for civil rights that was happening and people were so outraged about what was happening in the US and Charlie and his friends took that moment to stand up and say, you hypocrites. He held that mirror up and this is what we need to do now. When Charlie stood up, he was called a troublemaker and when our stories weren't being covered in the mainstream, he persisted. He knew that by building this momentum over time, eventually momentum builds into a moment that will have huge impact. It's this moment, momentum that will continue and force our governments to interchange. Brought on by First Nations leadership through increased agitation of people on the streets. The Aboriginal Tent Embassy is the longest running protest in history. On its 40th anniversary, people remember that Tony Abbott said that we should move on and that we don't have a reason to be protesting anymore. 
was so outraged at the Tamman Embassy as a community that a politician could come out and say something like that. But his comments and the fact that he was able to say them is a testament to how our communities have been silenced by the intervention. People didn't know how bad things still were. The strategy behind how we campaign across everything is centred around breaking this silence. That we needed to reinvigorate the ability for people to protest in this country. We need to break the silence and the people needed to understand that it's not just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand activists that are coming to protest, but that everyone in this country wants to see change. From that meeting, embassies were set up all over this country. We wanted everyone to talk about the injustices that were happening in our communities again. And this year, on January 26, we marked the 50th anniversary of the Tent Embassy. A decade on from Tony Abbott's comments, and we've got more people turning out to Invasion Day and Survival Day protests than the official January 26 celebration. And that's because people actually want to confront the history and we take the danger to explain how systemic racism and colonisation is still impacting us today. This is a strategic movement for us to build support and to tr tell our truth. This is our community creating the opportunity for us to win. We've been building this momentum for years amidst the forced closures of remote communities where people were faced with being displaced from their home, families and culture. They were threatened by turning off the power and even bulldozing their communities. I knew that our communities had to, had to be the truth tellers and was talking, and this was a call more broadly for assimilation and the forced removal of people from country. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. 